Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Storyteller, writer, publicist, and editor Roberta Wordinger is our guest once again. In the course of her November 21, 2016 visit, she shared her personal story, Barbed Wire and Flowers. That made it clear to me that she has more to say. Wordinger is a woman of words who studies the origin of words and the way in which their meanings have changed throughout history. Fascism is one of those words. How to recognize and respond to fascism, work with fear, and go beyond trauma is part of our conversation in this program. When Roberta Wordinger and I met in the Radio Curious studios on November 26th, she commented that she sees herself as having a hybrid life and modus operandi. We began when I asked her to describe her hybrid life and her modus operandi. I've discovered since I've been immersed in a uh, very different religious worldview and have um, traveled in India as well as Japan, um, that it's it's very um, natural for many people in those cultures to practice more than one religion and have absolutely no problem with that, no conflict. In Japan, a lot of Buddhist temples are built on the older grounds of Shinto temples, which is like the indigenous religion of Japan, a very old nature-worshipping religion. And instead of destroying the earlier pagan temples, um, like happened a lot in Europe, where Catholic churches were built literally on the ruins of the pagan temples they had destroyed. In Japan, they incorporate the temples. So within a very large Buddhist complex, you'll have a smaller section where people are performing Shinto rituals. And they say that everybody who's born in Japan is automatically Shinto. And then there are all these different sects of Buddhism, um, some of them very different from the conception most people have that Buddhism means sitting and meditating. There are myriad practices um, within each Buddhist country. And also I found studying the amazing tradition of Chinese poetry, there is a whole wonderful tradition of Chinese hermits that were active during the, they would call it the golden age of Zen in China. And quite a few of them had two or even three religions. Quite a few of them were Taoist as well as Buddhist. And some of them were Confucian as well. <laughs> One of them expressed it really well. He said something like one, zero, one, zero. One is Taoism, zero is Buddhism, the concept of, of emptiness and everything. And they were very practical, you know, so they might use Taoism for, Taoism has a lot of different rituals and elixirs for strength and health and extending life. And then they'd go back to Buddhism for meditation and studying the mind. And also um, in this country or in the Americas, you could say that it's very common for indigenous people to have incorporated Catholicism, especially into their native practice or to feel that they're both at once. And I know there was a huge amount of violence and coercion around that, but it seems to me that from a lot of reading that 
a lot of them are comfortable with having these dual identities. So whereas a lot of people, I think, um, more in the Abrahamic faiths want to know, well, what are you? What do you believe? What's your religion? There's a fluidity um, that's possible with that question. So how would you describe the way you have hybridized it into your life? <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, I do have a Jewish or, or Western soul. Um, but somehow incorporated with or maybe enclosing that is a the Buddhist teachings, which have um, just kind of struck me so profoundly that I do tend to frame things philosophically that way. But within Buddhist teachings, there's room to be yourself. And, you know, they're very clear that you have to find what that is. But there's a tremendous contribution coming into Buddhism from Western psychology, from Jungian archetypes. People are making all kinds of new um, syntheses. And I find that really exciting. What prompted you to study to become a Buddhist monk? Well, I would say that goes back to a very early experience, kind of primal for me. It kind of hit me in, in my gut. When I was little, and I said I grew up in Chicago, and my mother would take me to the Art Institute, uh, which is one of the great art institutions of the planet. And I remember once there was an exhibit of Asian art, and I came upon this white face. It was just this a perfectly shaped white face. And I remember staring at it and there was something about the shape of this face. And I remember at that moment thinking, I have to find these people. Whoever made it, I have to find. And it was a Japanese face with this amazing elegance and simplicity. It was a sculpture. It was pottery. I just needed, wanted to find whoever had made it, sensibility had made it, and study that more. It was like, I've got to go get this. What did you learn from that study? I learned that um, everything I think is conditioned, and probably even the best thought I have is a result of all these different factors that are coming together, and that there's tremendous amount of wisdom operating in every moment. And it's possible to tap into that in a better way if I don't take myself so seriously, but to take myself just seriously enough. So when you say every condition has wisdom, let's focus for a moment or two on a condition in the United States now, the 55 or so days prior to the time that Donald Trump becomes president. That's confusing to many people. Yes. What in that condition has wisdom? I think there's a tremendous amount of wisdom coming forth at this time as a result of the pressure we're in um, out of the terrible suffering that's happening already. We've already seen a number of hate crimes being committed this, uh, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but this hatred, which seems to have been simmering under the surface of our society for a while, people now feel permission to express it openly. And there's already, I think, tremendous distress about this. So you're asking, um, what is the, the wisdom from this condition? I think it's to take everything that we've really learned and um, all the tools and resources we have and apply it 
like mad, <laughs> you know, like this is not a dress rehearsal anymore is what some people have said. And I feel that I've had an incredible amount of gifts and privilege given to me in my life through being able to um, study my mind in meditation, through the gift of education that my parents made sure that I got, through this uh, beautiful place that I live, uh, the wonderful community that I have around me, the fact that there's um, all this science and technology that has come together to even help me sit here today in my seat, the gifts of the natural world, the world of human culture. We're really in an amazing moment in history because of the education that many of us have, the good health that some of us are blessed with and that we can take this and use it and really overcome these barriers that are inside of us and outside of us as well. You have a definition of the word fascism. Yes. That's been bantered about by a number of people in the United States in the past couple of weeks. Share with us, if you would, please, that definition and how you see it fitting into the larger culture of the United States now. Yes, thank you. Um, I, I do have a couple of specific examples of that. But let me go to the definition first, because um, I love going back to the roots of words and seeing um, how they're embedded in our culture. So the definition of fascism I got goes back to the word fasces, F-A-S-C-E-S. This is Latin, and um, this, this is straight from a dictionary site. It's a bundle of rods containing an axe with blade projecting, born before Roman magistrates as an emblem of official power. So we can all, I think that's a pretty vivid image, we can all get a sense of this emblem of power. And there's also this fascist movement, which often will be used with a capital F, that did descend maybe right through Rome in the same country through the Italian dictator Mussolini, who founded this movement, which was called fascism. And um, it's considered a type of totalitarianism, a type of government where no dissent is allowed and where it usually almost always involves some persecution of a group of people. And this is the important part because who the people are will shift, but they're always regarded as inferior and weak. And I think looking at the issue of strength and weakness is really important here because the first time I was really alerted to this in Trump's campaign, I mean, we all see that he doesn't understand about free speech and may suppress it. But where I saw it come out really obviously um, is when a disabled reporter asked him a question and Trump mocked the um, body language of this man who has different body language from us. And there was also his mocking John McCain and calling him a loser because he, you know, was taken prisoner 
during the Vietnam War um, was not the victor, at least in this worldview. He was not the victor. So this idea of strength and mocking people who may not have a certain amount of strength, um, you once you get that mentality, then you get women mocked as being weaker. You have to have certain groups of people who are seen as losers. And then it's no coincidence that this is someone who hosted a reality TV show, has been very involved in winning and, and losing all of these things, which seemed innocuous, like The Apprentice, where he would say, you're fired. Maybe they were innocuous then, but they can suddenly become very dangerous because um, when people are frightened, they're going to band together and um, try to identify something that they feel is weak, that they have to root out. As well as uh, subscribing to the orthodoxy and creed of the group in power. Um, yes, but in a way, I, I, I'm not sure that's the most important thing because I, I think this is operating on a very primitive mammalian level where um, Trump is presenting himself as this strong man. And you could see this played out in a really primitive level during the debates with Hillary Clinton, where he was famously lurking behind her and, you know, using his physical bulk and his expression to um, intimidate her. I would say by extent, he was intimidating all women by doing that. So, yes, there is a creed there, but um, there it's some level. I'm not sure if that's the most powerful thing operating. I think some of it is nonverbal or it's at a um, uh, emotional level, which just has to do with people being um, very terrified right now of all the changes happening and all the threats to them. So they want to, they're willing to give up their freedom to the strong man who keeps saying that he's going to protect them. And I'm not sure that's a creed or an ideology. We're visiting with Roberta Werdinger, a storyteller, writer, author, editor in the studios of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. So, Roberta, in the United States now, the potential conflicts include grouping people, Muslims, Mexican people, identifying them, potential lists. And I noticed last week you were wearing several safety pins. What is that message of wearing a safety pin? This is a movement which has been spreading pretty quickly. I saw it um, on the internet, I'm pretty sure on Facebook first. Um, it's just a um, symbol that um, some people want to give out that they're willing that like they themselves are a safety zone and they want to tell different vulnerable groups that you are safe. Um, and if somebody threatens you or if you need some kind of assistance, then, um, then I'm willing to provide it. That speaks for you or the philosophy of the safety pin? Oh, I'd say both. You know, in a way, I'm willing to adopt this, this sign uh, or the symbol because I agree with it. And I would want somebody to do the same for me. So what would be the limits of the safety that could be provided by you, for example? Because obviously it, it would vary from circumstance to circumstance. Mm -hmm. What would be the limits? I don't know if I can put a limit on it. I think it, it depends on the circumstance. I don't know if I can provide a specific example. I may or may not be able to that the ability to turn on a dime 
and be able to respond skillfully even to really very dangerous situations. That ability is unlimited. It has to do with our imaginations and our heart. It doesn't mean that you just foolishly throw yourself into the fray. There's no point in sacrificing your safety, maybe even your life, for no reason. It's maybe more most useful as a commitment to myself that I care about the safety of other people, and I want them also to care about mine if I'm threatened. So the term skillfully is there. Yes. Can you address that? Uh, I would say skillful in a way just means smart, you know, um, be as smart as you can about it. And I've been talking with people some about Oscar Schindler, who saved a number of threatened Jewish people in Nazi-occupied Europe, and he didn't do it by direct confrontation, which almost certainly would have gotten him killed. Um, he did it by pretending to be a Nazi party official and saying, well, I need some of those Jews for my factory to work for me, which was very common to use slave labor. And often in those situations, the Jews would have really been used as slaves and worked to death or starved to death or worked for a while and then killed. But under his auspices, he created a safety zone for those Jews. And he did have a factory where they just pretended to make something, I forget what, and where they actually were decently clothed and fed and protected. And he was arrested three different times under suspicion from the Nazis. The movie made by Steven Spielberg shows one arrest, but there is an entire book called Schindler's List by Thomas Keneally, which goes into it in more detail. He definitely was in danger, but somehow he, he got through it. He got through the questioning. I've recently heard Trevor Noah interviewed on Fresh Air, and he gave a really good analogy to this. Um, he likened it to uh, boxing. I guess he got some training boxing, um, saying that when you're trained, probably in any kind of martial art, you're trained to take certain blows and learn how to respond, not blindly. If a boxer loses control, they're, you know, they're done, they're knocked out. But to be able to stay on your feet and be able to um, respond skillfully to what's coming at you. And again, I don't, I don't know what that skillfulness will look like. But there's the point of don't just you know, take a, a stimulus or a punch and just immediately respond to that. You have to know how to respond. I think there are two aspects here. There's there's physical ag aggression right. and verbal aggression, yeah. where the responses are very different. Yes, yeah. Of course, physical aggression. Somebody could be killed. That's, that's the worst. But there are ways that verbal aggression are more corrosive, and the effects can be more long-lasting and more toxic to people. So um, that's a very important field to, um, to work in. That's the field that I'm more comfortable working in because I'm not a martial artist. Roberta Wordinger, let's talk about thinking about the future. Mm -hmm. And one way that's done is through journalists. Mm -hmm. And they are um, targets sometimes for doing their job mm -hmm. and sometimes for not doing their job. I really feel for journalists right now. Their job is to, um, to check facts. And I would say that, let's say outside the alternative universe of 
outlets like Fox News, which I don't think I'll, I'll get into right now. I think that they are doing their job. And just from the um, their tones of voice, even on Election Day, I would say that they're deeply disturbed by this. We've had some unprecedented events in the journalistic world, for example, USA Today, which is a newspaper, honestly, I never paid that much attention to coming out for the first time, uh, coming out against Donald Trump as being a presidential candidate. So they are checking the facts and this whole idea that we are able to even have an agreed upon truth is very endangered right now because Donald Trump has succeeded in creating an alternate universe where whatever he says is true, even though a good, very good part of it has no basis in fact. And then what he says will be echoed um, because of the way our media is set up, echoed so that it um, creates its own strength. And soon his followers are chanting, build that wall. They, you know, I'm pretty sure that chant was originated by his followers. So this is a, a very dangerous time. It is one that definitely signals that we're um, in danger of being engulfed by fascism. And I, I do have to say, I know that there can be a lot of dissatisfaction about what's called the corporate media or certain news that isn't on um, the news. But Right now, I really respect and admire, I've been using CNN myself quite a lot lately, a lot more than I did before. And um, I just really treasure them and I hope they can continue is all I can say. Well, Roberta Wordinger, I wanna thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And, and before we close, although this program has been essentially about you, there are a couple of specific points about which I'm curious. A eureka or an aha moment that captured your imagination, that changed your life? Well, the one that I want to focus on um, is really what's what I'm building my memoir around, um, which is this moment I had when um, I was on a meditation retreat that was quite a few years ago, where um, I realized that the entire um, fascist system, um, the whole oppressive system that had killed my father's family and persecuted him, um, that I had incorporated it all inside my mind. And I didn't even know that that's what I had done um, until I examined it very closely. And it was very horrific. It was very devastating to have this moment to realize it. But um, it was also tremendously liberating. It just took me a long time to unpack it. Talk about what you were able to identify in the process of unpacking. Um, I was able to identify, in shorthand, you could call it internalized oppression, which means that um, I had taken all the hateful voices and they were an echo chamber in my own head. And um, I was using that to sabotage and undercut myself and more or less make myself miserable. And as soon as I could get a handle on the fact that, um, yes, it had happened in history, but now it was happening inside of me in the echo chamber of my head, then I was able to um, do something about it. And um, I would say sidestep it and not even get rid of the voices, but coexist with them um, and find their true heart 
make friends with them. The echo chamber of your head, yes. is that connected to your meditation practice? Um, well, my meditation practice helped me understand that that was going on, that there was so much going on, these thoughts that I was not even able to comprehend because they were happening so quickly, and they were happening right under the level of my conscious mind. Can you characterize that process that you used to reveal those thoughts awareness. to yourself? It's 100% awareness. Not that I have 100% awareness, but that's the technique. And there are actually many techniques to heighten awareness. Meditation is one, the conventional meditation. There are um, traditions where, you know, people just chant and ring loud instruments all day. You could go to a t some Tibetan temples and they'll just be um, making a huge racket with their musical instruments. <laughs> it's not quiet meditation at all, but the technique is awareness. When you say awareness, mm -hmm. of what? Awareness of, um, of the mind and everything that means. The mind is, is nature too. Awareness of what's happening right now, which I can't never completely describe. And Roberta, what would you like to do with the rest of your One Precious Life? There's some part of me that would just like to sit here and keep talking because I just like to talk. But at some point, I'd probably run out of breath. So I think that um, I want to continue this awareness practice because it's endless. And I feel that I've just uh, really just begun. Well, stay with that for a minute. Okay. Awareness, mindfulness. How does one who does not practice that delve into the reaches of her or his mind? I would say just be really, really gentle with everything going on. You know, even if you did nothing but that, um, you'll make tremendous progress. How do you define gentle? Don't judge your inner dictator. I mean, I have this like inner dictator and, you know, he's kind of people inside who are not real nice. They're not who I want to be, you know? <laughs> um, and so I've, um, I've learned or I'm learning to be more gentle and forgiving towards them because they carry some kind of information, even though they're not real great at um, communicating. But being able to just listen and understand and, and not judge um, everything that I am, uh, that, that in itself has been maybe the most important thing I've done. And finally, yeah. Roberta Wordinger, is there a book that you can recommend to our listeners? I want to recommend uh, this book in the wake of um, uh, this election and where it puts us, because it's written by a, a brilliant person, and I think it went under the radar. It's called The Unconquerable World, Power, Nonviolence, and the Will of the People. It was written by Jonathan Schell, S-C-H-E-L-L, -L, in 2003. He wrote The Fate of the Earth earlier about coming to terms with nuclear annihilation. In this book, he has this whole history of um, nonviolent movements and how they were able to operate. And um, he has a whole chapter on the Velvet Revolution and people in Eastern Europe like Vaclav Havel, which I think we again, does not hit our radar enough. And this is really, um, they had techniques for dealing with totalitarianism that can be really useful right now. Roberta Werdinger, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. My pleasure. Roberta Werdinger 
a storyteller, writer, publicist, and editor, has been our guest on this edition of Radio Curious. She studies the origins of words and the way in which their meanings have changed throughout history. Her story, Barbed Wire and Flowers, may be found on the Radio Curious website, radiocurious.org. The book that Roberta Wordinger recommends is The Unconquerable World, Power, Nonviolence, and the Will of the People by Jonathan Schell. This program was recorded on November 26, 2016. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website. They're free for anyone to enjoy, download, and broadcast as you wish. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters about our programming and look forward to hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The snail mail is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. Savannah Robinson is our intern. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.